Welcome to the Art of Healthcare podcast, where we aim to be as good at the human side of healthcare as we are at the clinical side of healthcare. My name is Chris Desmond. I'm a physiotherapist who's fascinated by how we can better help the person with the problem. Join us as we learn how to connect better, how to show up better, and how to understand our patients and ourselves better. Welcome to the Art of Healthcare podcast. This is the show where we explore the human side of healthcare with experts so we can learn how to better help the person with the problem. Today, I am joined by Grant Downey. Grant is a medical and performance specialist consultant and with a background as a physiotherapist. And Grant, actually, you were put on to me by David Clancy, who was a previous guest. His his podcast episodes just recently come out. So thank you, David, if you're listening, mate. And thank you, David. And thank yeah. you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to come on and speak and listen to yourself. Oh, is it the New Zealand accent that you enjoy or is it uh, is there something else, Grant? No, I, I, think it, I think it's always great to to meet different people from different countries with different experiences just to broaden your own and i think you know i I, i've been very fortunate enough to to visit with work six continents of the world and been able to speak speak in every one of them and yet i go to teach but i go most importantly to learn Mm. yeah every day is a school day Absolutely, absolutely, and then I and I think that you know I, I was talking to a group of the Premier League coaches about that recently on one of the courses we do with the Premier League, and it was about that. And one of the emphasis we're trying to make on them is their their journey of professional and self development ends the day you die, you know, and 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 actually that's in life, and that doesn't mean we're after perfection, and I think so. I think we have to be careful how we frame learning but i think it's that inquisitiveness it's that curiosity to to want to realize the answers we have today probably won't be good enough tomorrow and that's good or and and also when we find the answers to many questions the questions often change yeah yeah Uh, that's there's something that i found in my life is that when i kind of figure out an answer to something what it does is it opens up probably eight or ten or twenty new questions that i didn't know that I needed to ask before I'd been on this learning journey. And I think, like, as you as you said, I think perfection is actually the enemy of learning because Absolutely. perfection, like it creates a, a false end point for us. Exactly. And there's always something and, else. And it's a fear too. And, it, and it's a fear because if, you, if you're after perfection, you'll be frightened to get something wrong. And I know many people are motivated by the fear of failure and that's fine. But I think in the pursuit of, I, do, I wouldn't even use the word excellence, but in the pursuit of something that is, that is, that is, is for the good of all and good of, of of others, you know, you have to you have to get things wrong at times. And if perfection is what you're after, you know, you'll continually press the brake, not the accelerator. Yeah, you're right with that one. And I think like that's a that's a theme that I see in healthcare quite a lot is that we're we're striving for perfection or we're striving for the right answer or the answer at the back mm. of the textbook and there is a there is a reasonable amount of fear of failure around that as well and i think there's there's probably for a variety of reasons not not only that we're perfectionists yeah. but i mean to we're, we're going down a rabbit hole straight away with this but i mean how how can we advance or how can we kind of advance our learning past that that fear of getting things wrong how can we embrace that first of all so, you've got safely safely exactly and exactly i mean we don't want disasters we don't want litigation thrown at us as, as therapists or as, as as doctors you know we we we've, we've got to I think, first of all, the environment we 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 are brought up to work. <clears throat> excuse me, be it a hospital, a clinic, a sporting organisation, must create. I mean, and again, it's a very used term today that that psychological safety. But what is psychological safety? Well, psychological safety must be the organisation has a has a has a vision, has an identity, it has a purpose. It 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 allows people that amount of flex to to push barriers, but. You know, we have to be very careful in today's modern world that there is, there is scientific principles behind what we do, 
But we have to also be honest and say the pioneers push science beyond boundaries and then science catches up and that's normal. So we shouldn't fear trying something new. Is, is for example, you know, 25, 30 years ago, everyone would have put ice on every acute injury because they said it reduced swelling. Well, it probably doesn't. But we still use it in some instances. In some instances, you go to countries to put heat on straight away and things get better. And so what I'm a great believer in is being, and that's why I'm saying by traveling the world and seeing, let's say, let's take in the sporting context, treating a hamstring injury. You know, if you come from probably down south like yourself, from Australia, New Zealand, maybe northern Europe, you might believe in in doing some Nordic training, a lot of eccentric training. If you come from South America, you'll do none. You'll just jog around a football pitch, get ultrasound, apply to your hamstring three times a day, and their recurring injury rates are no greater than ours. So who says who says eccentrics are everything? Do I think they're an important component to it? For some, very important. Some not very important. And I think, again, that's where the art, in my opinion, the art of being a good therapist knows the difference. But there should be some scientific principles either behind what we're delivering or attempting to deliver. But actually, we still have to remember, I think we're artists, not scientists. But that's just my opinion. Why do you think we're artists and not scientists, Grant? I think what we, it's a great question, and we could probably spend the next, day debating this. I, I, I think if you think of so many of the, the outcome measures we're we're taught to taught to measure with our patients are purely physical. But in my belief and a very strong opinion of mine is I've never yet treated an injury in my life. I've treated thousands of people who've been injured. They've got a mental side, emotional side, they've got social sides. And I think we are driven outcome measures that we can measure for the sake of probably justifying what we do. But very rarely do patients want to know the the importance of weight-bearing dorsiflexion or recovery of full elevation in the shoulder problem. They want to get back to be able to play netball. They want to be able to get back and and, and climb a mountain. And so therefore, I'm a great believer with, with true patient care the outcome measures must be specific to that individual. Now, they'll have something behind them. So the person who wants to climb the mountain will need to get weight-bearing dorsiflexion back. But he's not really interested or she's not interested in getting weight-bearing dorsiflexion back. They want to be able to have a mobile foot so they can climb hills. So is that not a better outcome measure? And I think if you're wanting patients to take ownership of the rehabilitation, which I think we'd all agree is the right approach, you know, those should be written very highly on their goals of achievement, not weight-bearing dorsiflexion. It should be to achieve uh, an optimal range of movement at the ankle so Chris can, you know, can actually climb the hill he wants to climb again. And it should be written in these terms with the picture of the hill. So when he's actually pushing that weight-bearing dorsiflexion, he's thinking of the hill. He's not thinking of weight-bearing dorsiflexion. Mm. It's hard to measure in a study across numerous participants and it's also hard to it's also sometimes hard to justify to funders as well Mm -hmm. with it don't get me wrong i'm i completely agree with with the premise of what you're saying there but there are challenges i think for us a little big big challenge big challenges for the whole industry because i think we write you know physiotherapy as a profession i've been a physiotherapist for too long from that perspective of where I went into it, it was far too artistic and there was very little science behind it. I think we've gone through a stage now where we're, we've, we've increased this, the, the level of, of people going into physiotherapy from a qualification. I mean, I probably wouldn't get into physiotherapy now. I'm not clever enough. I'm not bright I'm, enough. Might I might not either. No, I would definitely wouldn't. I know I wouldn't. But actually, I think that's sad because I don't think I was a bad physio because the person in front of you is a mix of physiological, mental, emotional, and spiritual energy. And and I think, you know, I think Einstein summed it up best. We measure many things that don't count, but the most important things we can't measure. And I think we have to sometimes, we have to have measures. So please don't think I'm not saying we shouldn't be measuring things, but I think there's a bigger picture. And in, in our mind, the first thing I, I, I saw, I see an odd private patient now, maybe four or five a week if that. So I, I can't say I've got my finger on the pulse, but I saw a lady just last week. It was a fascinating lady. How old was she? Probably 58. Highly motivated, runs a couple of businesses, very busy in life. Clearly, you know, 
has has a scoliosis of her spine, probably some, as she said, degeneration of spine, but so active and wants to be active. And again, with her, you know, we sat down and talked for probably a good 45 minutes about things within her control to try and help some of her back pain. And most of them were actually thinking of trying to find half an hour to 45 minutes a day, just to sort of maybe lie on the floor, just do a little bit of stretching, just switch off a little bit from the, the busyness of her life. And we talked about it after, and we did a minimal, minimal back assessment and speaking to her a week later, her taking control, she already feels quite a bit better. Now, how I would measure that, I don't know, other than a subjective examination, because probably her straight leg raise will be no different. Her range of movement won't be a lot different, but actually her, maybe her VAS scores might be a little bit different. We could maybe do it that way a little bit. But I think more importantly, she has an understanding, having been told by by a, a, a doctor, she's got scoliosis, she's got osteoarthritis in her spine. And I was a bit like, well, what do these terms mean to you? What, what, what? A scoliosis, I understand, you've got a leg length discrepancy, so, so you've got a select tilt, but you wear a shoe raise, so that's corrected. You have a natural amount of aging in your body, but so I said, so do I, I'm older than you, I've got more than you. You know, we're, we're all, and, and, and I think we, we have to remember, yes, there is, a physiological process going on in this person's body, but actually it's combined, you know, the signals come from the brain. And I wouldn't, I mean, so therefore, could we conclude every injury is a brain injury? Probably not. But actually what the brain inputs and outputs is a very significant part of it, in my opinion. Mm. And then you started getting even deeper than that. And I saw Laura Rathbone, this do a post about kind of where does your consciousness lie as well? Because you, for perception of this, you need to be conscious. Does that happen in the mind or is that somewhere else as well that brings that awareness of, of the... Yeah, um, well, I, I think it could be a bit of both because I think you can be... I remember about, about a year and a half ago, I, I struggled a little bit with a, a tennis elbow problem. And it was really annoying because I've got time in my life where I can play golf, I can take a dog for a walk, but it was a really niggling, niggling. And I remember once I was out and I take my dog regularly for a walk by the golf course where I play because it's only 800 metres from my front door and it's right by the sea. And I was watching a gentleman hit a golf shot and he hit the shot badly and he took a real big divot and my elbow went sore. Because was I therefore imagining me playing that shot? And it was, so how did my elbow go sore at that point? Why? You know, and, and I think so, therefore, our environment is important. We, you know, we can be, be conscious of so many things ourselves. And I think, as you said yourself, you know, you can, you can be focusing like you and I are talking now. And you may have some underlying, like me, I've got up, I'm a little bit stiff this morning, had a busy day yesterday in the garden, back's a bit stiff, a bit sore the first thing this morning. But in a sense, I've been talking to you, I've not been thinking about it one bit. It's not felt, it feels a bit sore now, now I'm thinking about it. So can we switch these things on and off? And I think we can. And the environment, you know, I, I, yeah, you, you know, you 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 see it in sport. You see it at the very highest level of sport that sometimes people will get stress, anxiety, and they'll 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 feel pain in a part of their body when they go to a certain stadium, because possibly two years ago they broke their leg there, and yet that was two years ago. They've completely made a full recovery, and yet they'll tell you my, my tibia's starting to hurt a little bit at the moment. Now, the tibia is not looking at the stadium thinking, this is intimidating, is it? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, I I notice that if I get back pain, and it, I, I get back pain occasionally, it's always when I'm more stressed. Absolutely. Or I've eaten Absolutely. something dodgy the night before and kind of my guts are a wee bit weird. And yeah. that yeah. Seems, seems to give me back pain too. But rather than kind of doing a heavy workout at the gym or or having an injury or something like that. It's it's always related to something that is going on not with that part of my body. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think it's trying to figure out what, why and how. And 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 again, I think with patients, we've you know, we went through a stage again thirty years ago, probably fifteen years ago, we're doing a lot of heavy manual therapy and I think we've now thrown all of that out and I think throwing it all out isn't 
always the right thing to do, but I think we overdid it without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, but I think taking time to listen to our patients and actively listen, really, you know, my, my, my back hurts when I'm at work, but what are you doing when you're at work? You know, I sit all day. What do you mean you sit from nine o'clock till, till five o'clock? No, I well, so can you tell me more detail? And I think we've got to sometimes really know how to question. And, you know, I, I remember, again, working in, a, in an academy in, in professional football, we used to have young boys and girls would regularly walk into the medical area and they used to use a phrase that, you know, my leg's killing me. So I used to love then taking them on their own and say, out of interest, can you clarify what killing means to you? Yeah, my leg hurts. I went, well, if I was to say to you, killing me, in my mind, is if I was to stand on a landmine and my leg was blown up. Oh, it's nothing like that. Well, is it killing you then? No, it's not. It hurts. Well, maybe could we change the language? Can we change the metaphor slightly? Because I think those sort of things with, with, with patients can sort of multiply. Because if his pain's bad, my pain must be worse too. Because his says this is killing me, but he's able to walk. And I can't quite walk on my leg. So mine's worse. So mine must be doubly killing me. And I think it's important we... What do we mean by that? Yeah, so it's it's almost kind of like reframing the story that someone Absolutely. is telling themselves mm -hmm. and about what's going on. And I love the, I really enjoyed the example that you used there to get in to kind of ask permission to go on on that journey with them and and reframe it. Exactly, and I, and I can you can't jump in, and it's a real danger that, I, and I've seen physiotherapists do this where I sort of mentor some of them and they're a bit like, no, no, you can't use those terms. No, no, don't, don't quite say that to pay. Let them use any language they want because it's theirs. But actually, as you say, take them on a journey. And, you know, again, this lady I'll go back to who I saw this week who I remember saying, and she was saying, you know, my back, it just does feel a little bit stiff in certain areas. And, and you know, it does tighten up a little bit. You just got it to forward bend and then come back up and the spasm on one side of her back. I mean, it was firing like you don't know what. And she, you know, she's obviously put up with quite a bit. And, and, and some people, you know, you don't even see that on at all. So she was almost belittling her probably some of her, her, her guarding movements, uh, but had got used to doing it. And I think it's so easy for us to say, you know, I don't think it's as painful as they think it is. Well, we're not perceiving pain. I mean, I always remember I had a very young, not a lot young, probably a 28-year-old professional footballer who had been playing for the club in the Premier League, uh, sort of higher level, with a knee problem. And he'd got, from a, an MRI perspective, he'd got a torn lateral meniscus, but it was one of those that he was able to play with, lacked a little bit of end range flexion, occasionally got a little effusion, occasionally was a little bit stiff into extension. And I remember once he, he just, after one game, he just said, right, I can't carry on anymore. And I remember looking at his knee a day or two days later, and there was no real difference in what he'd been presenting with over the last two, two or three weeks. But he decided he just couldn't play anymore. The manager just said to me, "Well, you know, just because he's got no more change in the symptoms, is he, is he, is he making the most of his symptoms?" And I went, "Well, there's two ways of looking at it. Maybe he was underplaying them before. But the one thing I can't tell you is what he's feeling, and also what we're not aware of. We've just talked purely clinically. This was a player who, in three months' time, his contract was up." who basically was knew that if he if he ended up needing surgery, he may not get a contract renewed and the club might not want him. Was he starting to protect himself slightly? Was he was he was he fearful? And probably a lot of things were going on that were influencing how that knee felt. Nothing to do with playing football on that field, but just the contexture of where he was in his career. And I think a good physiotherapist or a good caring practitioner will have an understanding but never be able to turn around particularly to a third party and say it's not really changed he must be making the most of his symptoms because that's not the case very dangerous you know language to sort of get involved in particularly in professional sport where where sometimes there are there, there are conflicts but it's it's it's, it's again, it's a person, there's an emotional brain attached to that knee that is probably looking forward and thinking, can I, can't I, should I, will I, should I not? What's the risk? And they have to calculate it from their personal angle and not just the team angle. Because irrespective of how well the team do, they might not do well.
mm. and you're stuck in the middle of all of that. Yeah, and I guess like we, with someone like that, we want to we want to help them and we want to kind of Absolutely. facilitate them getting better or, or continuing to function at a at a high level and continuing to live well. I mean, this is probably a two part question, but how do we? Like, how do we start to broaden our vision of that person and all the contextual stuff past the pathology? And then how do we support them with stuff like that, that maybe we feel that we're not, we're not capable of supporting them with? I, th I think again, so let's play this case out because this is a real case. So it's easy to talk about this player. I'd known for what three years, and and when you're dealing in a in a club environment and it's a professional environment, you know these people day to day, so you get to know them as people, and I think that's the key bit. They're people first, player second, and knowing this player's background and where he was from, living in England, thousands of miles away from home, I felt the best way to try and understand him was to send him a text message just to check he was okay and ask him would he fancy meeting me at five o'clock following day for a coffee in a coffee bar and just have a chat and, and again you could argue that's more difficult with with just outpatients but in this case we met and i think first of all seeing him in his normal clothes seeing me in my normal clothes out of uniform you know and most importantly just asking the question how are you i'm not asking about uni how are you let's forget you need and 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 again that that when this person opened up all about his contract all about his worries all about that and what you forget is this is a young you know 28 year old person who's yes living and playing in a good brand of football in england so financially earning a good salary but that salary could end in three in, in three months with nothing he's also supporting a mum and dad back home thousands of miles away who he's bought their house paying for their house looking after his sister the pressures are immense on such a young person's shoulder. And I think, you know, this person, did he need psychological help? No, he didn't. He just, this is someone who just needed a caring, compassionate person to listen and help him work out. Yes, you could stop now and possibly have surgery. B, one could carry on playing and then possibly face surgery. C, might never need surgery, but these are the possible options and these are the things we should be concerned about if it changes. And I think gave him that rationale within, within this was in the space of a week. So when he stopped playing and said, I can't carry on playing, it was like on Monday after a Sunday game, we had a game the following Saturday, he was available to play again and played to the end of the season and actually eventually never did have surgery and actually did get another, didn't actually stay with his club, but got another contract with another club. You know, so, but it, 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 I think again, we, we, we forget most importantly, you know, I've often said it, Patient, yes, without shadow of doubt, but person first. And and yes, we have to under respect confidentiality. So we're going to treat them as patients, but they're a person. So let's let's, you know, genuinely, how are you and how is this affecting you? And affecting you in what way? Mm. Because some people will have significant pathology, but they're still playing 18 holes of golf every day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from a from a clinic room perspective as well, like it, it is it's challenging to go and meet someone outside of work and kind of change that, change that environment. But I think that that question that you ask there as well is like, how is, how is this affecting your life? Like we know that you're sore. We know that you've got all of the stuff going on and that's the stuff that everybody talks about. But the stuff that nobody talks about is the effect that these symptoms have on your life and the effect that Absolutely. these symptoms have on your mentalist, mental state and your <laughs> emotional state and your relationships which we know all happens, but no one talks about them. So how are you, how are you going with that? Do you want to share something with me on that one? Yeah, I think again, I think you've got to be able to really, what's the right word? You've almost got to, I would, I would suggest, I, I remember when I moved to the island, I had a, I, I, one of my second patients here was, was again, probably an, a lady in her late 40s who had, you know, had had significant back pain over a number of years. And when she came to see me within five minutes, she was in, we just sat down and we just gently, I think you have to be able to, I think you have to have emotional intelligence yourself and be able to, some people will come in, right, 
upright, start, want to talk, want to be very businesslike, want to be very logical. Some people want to come and and open up a little bit, but you've got to be prepared to be the person who's prepared to listen and ask, and sometimes ask the right questions, but sometimes just let them talk. And I'm a great believer. This lady just opened up a little bit about she, her back pain always got worse, as you were talking before, when she was sleeping badly. But she's sleeping badly at the moment because she's fallen out with a daughter who's got a baby, but she's not seeing the baby. All of this within 10 minutes, she was she was opened up so emotionally, she was crying and, I, and she was so embarrassed at first. She never even met, had met me. So this person I never, I'm like, don't worry. No one's coming for the next hour, which I'm very fortunate. We can just sit here and we can talk. And we just talked and I very quickly at the end of it, never even asked her to take one item of clothing up, realised she was a little bit... We talked more about sleep patterns. We then showed her maybe two exercises, which were, I think, bridging and super lady, as I call it. So not Superman. You know, uh, we talked about maybe just doing a couple of these and just do some breathing before she sleeps. And she went away and I never saw her for another three weeks and said, I'm very happy to see you again, but just see how it goes. But about 10 days later, her husband was one of the people who helped build the house that I live in now. And I, and I went, Grant, Grant, can I have a quick word with you? And I he said, what did you do to my wife? I'm like, oh my goodness, what's he going to say? I said, well, why were I asking? She's never felt better. I said, she feels unbelievably. She said, you've shown us some stuff to do. She slept brilliantly the last 10 nights. Now, you and I know, Chris, if you're sleeping well, things tend to settle back into quite normality quite quickly. And I think what we've got to be able to do as therapists is very much, you know, use your observational skills. This lady, when she came in, had quite significant tiredness looking syndrome, as I call it, slightly baggy eyes, slightly talking, you know, on one track, going down another track, as a lot of people do when they're really tired. And I think, you know, our physiotherapy training can only be enhanced if we really think of people as well as pathology. And don't get me wrong, we have to understand pathology, so please don't think I'm belittling that. But I think the exponential growth comes in therapists when they understand the soft skills, the emotional side of it. And so we are, you know, are we psychologists? No, we're not. That's a complete profession, but we have to have a very good understanding, but also know when maybe a problem's gone too far and you need to involve a psychologist. And don't be frightened to, because a psychologist to me is no different to a physiotherapist or a chiropractor or an osteopath. You know, I've seen a psychologist before. First admitted, I had a real difficult time in my life when I lost contact with my three children and, and I couldn't, and this is 20 years ago, so going to see a psychologist then would have been frowned upon. And I was forced by my good friend, the doctor, to go, because I said, no, they're for weak people. I don't need to go and see a psychologist, which I, again, how wrong was I? And I went and it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. It just opened a, a new avenue of thinking, a way of dealing with things that that I realise the importance of it. And to me, it's no different to tearing a cruciate ligament if you need to go and see a psychologist. It's brilliant. You should. But as physiotherapists, we, should, we shouldn't just be saying you need to go and see a psychologist. The way I've said it, I'm almost implying there's something wrong with you. I would almost say to a person, you know something, I've got an idea that may even help you even more than I'm doing. And I think it would help you. I think that's a far better way of saying go and see a psychologist. Yes. Yeah. Some people are very, very open to it and others you do need to, you need to frame it up for them, I, I think. Exactly. And I'll tell the story about my life and I often do. And I tell them, listen, you know, I, and I've said that I, I, you know, I, I don't speak to, if I spoke to a professional psychologist recently about myself, I did actually last year when I was struggling a little bit. And I just said, I just need, and this is a very good friend of mine. And and I said, I don't want to compromise you, but I feel a little bit lost at the moment, about two or three injuries. I'm just not quite, I, I, I called it my graphic equalizers are not bouncing the way I like them to be. And with one conversation with her, they were bouncing again. And, 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 and sometimes good psychologists don't say much. They just, again, they're like physios. They point you in the right direction. And I had that. And I think I remember, again, I don't mind sharing it from a personal angle with <clears throat> the situation about my children. I've, I've got three children I've never now seen for over 20 years. And is it hard? Yes, it's it's extremely difficult. It, you Coming up to Christmas, it isn't my favourite time of year, but it's not my least favourite. But 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 you you, I remember speaking to the psychologist probably after about four months and probably seeing them once a week. They just said to me, how old are me? I can't remember, I was probably 35, 36. 
And where have you got in your life? And I went, well, I was dyslexic as a child. I had to really work hard, but I've overcome every problem I've got. And she went, when are you going to realize you're never going to overcome this problem? And I realized why I was dealing with this inappropriately. I was trying to solve a problem I couldn't solve. I had to learn how to manage. There's a difference. And sometimes those penny momentous moments change your life. And and would I still like to solve the problem? Yes, but I can't. I have to live with it. And I think you have to, you know, have that deeper understanding. And sometimes by sharing a story like that, showing your own vulnerabilities. And I think showing your own vulnerabilities to patients, some people, well, that's a weakness. No, it's not. It's a connector. It's a strength. I'm not, I'm not born to have a better word. What's the right word? Weak in life. I'm, I've got vulnerabilities, as every human being has. But, you know, if you probably look at my life from a professional angle, certainly, and even from a personal angle, it's pretty successful. You know, I've achieved a lot. I'm, I'm very self-satisfied, so that's the most important thing. It doesn't really matter what other folks think. But actually, I've got vulnerabilities. I cry about my children still. You know, if I watch Mrs. Doubtfire, I cry my heart out. I actually watched that film once and drove 360 miles the next day to try and see my children play in the playground with a brush in the back of my hand and a, a coat on to look like I was cleaning the pavement. That's how low you can get at times. And that sounds crazy. But when you've got children, you'll understand what that means. Mm. But I was still doing a, a really, what you could argue, I was still the head physiotherapist in a major football club who were winning trophies. And yet the next day I went back to work and was working as if nothing was wrong. But underneath it, there was a crack inside. But I could still do my job. So being vulnerable, you know, doesn't mean you can't function. It just means you're vulnerable at that part of your life. And I think sharing that vulnerability, you know, is a... I look at it as a strength and it's a very good human connector because I've used the same, I used that same story with a group of Premier League elite coaches and there was about 250 in the room where I asked mainly gentlemen, so not as many females, which is changing, thankfully. But I just asked them the question, you know, you're a group of male coaches in an academy setting in football, elite football, you all coach elite young boys. How many of you had a knee, ankle or hip injury? And they all put their hand up. How many of you had a hamstring back problem? They all put their hand up. I said, how many of you had mental and emotional issues that have affected your performance so you struggle a little bit at work, but you're able to manage? About five out of 250 put their hand up. I then, okay, I said, I'm going to ask you that question again in a moment. I then told them the story about my own ch children, the situation I was in, then said, how many of you prepared to put your hand up? They all did. Mm. Because they realized it's acceptable. Yeah, yeah, it's... Being able to share and creates, I, I think, enhances psychological safety within yeah. that that environment yeah. as well, and gives people permission as well to absolutely to open up and go a little bit deeper. And I, I think, like from a if we're thinking about it in the healthcare context as well, that's really important for being able to start to understand all of these contextual factors that are going on for this person as well. And it's uh, you. you you don't want to. You don't want to do it in an icky way, in terms no, of no. going going and sharing something to try and drag stuff out. But if a, a situation presents itself, then and and I, th and I think there's a lot of. I remember when I was in my la in my lateral full time role at Manchester City as the head of performance service. We had one of our physios in the academy was a brilliant an academy physio and he went on one of Peter O'Sullivan's courses and I, I really think you know Peter's one of the the, the modern rightful pioneers of, of the way physiotherapy is going from the bi biopsychosocial model and we thought we would try and adopt some of this to the younger players so so the physiotherapist with Peter designed like a, a modified Erebro questionnaire for children and it was one of the best things we ever did and when I say children these are young boys from, from the age of probably they didn't do it below 12, 12 to six, 18. But what we started to do when they were coming back from injury was doing a rebro questionnaire. And we used to sometimes get them to draw pictures of what they, where they were. And we had one young, young player who had a nasty fracture dislocation of his ankle where it had to be surgically repaired with a tight rope. 
you know, just to stabilize the mortis of the ankle joint. And this guy was struggling like mad to get his weight bearing dorsiflexion back. He probably at full was about nine centimeters, but he was stuck at about two and just couldn't move it. And, and I remember and the physio was really mobilizing it, mobilizing, it, not improving. And we just said to the player one day, out of interest, just go into a room and can you can you just draw some pictures, fill in this questionnaire? What? And he drew a lovely little picture of his ankle, and he put a big screw right across it, and he and he and he put an arrow to it. That screw's stopping my ankle move. And we looked at it and thought, he hasn't even got a screw in his ankle. But obviously, when the specialist had been speaking to him about it, he said, I fixed it and I wired it, and he thought a wire is a screw. And interesting, we got his x-ray out and showed him there isn't a screw in your ankle. You just got this tiny little tightrope here. Ah, that's interesting. Three days later, his movement had gone from two centimeters to six without one mobilization. And he, he admitted every time he thought he was pushing his ankle forward, he felt pain and that was a screw. And if he's hitting the screw, it'll damage his ankle further. So I don't want to push my ankle into that range of movement. Fascinating. Yeah, it is. Uh, but we're, we're in the situation now where we have time, and that is a big thing. But I think it's how you use your time. And I'm a great believer in physiotherapy. If we Do I think joint mobilizations has a place to play? Well, it does in recovering from significant pathology, from ACL tears or ankle injuries like that. But if we're mobilizing it two or three times without improving, maybe we should then reconsider the definition of insanity, which is trying the same process and expecting a different outcome. Hey there team, we're just taking a short break in the chat to let you know about something really exciting. Podcasts are great, and I'm sure that you're getting a whole heap from this one, but they don't always move the needle on improving our skill set in the human side of healthcare. And that's why I've set up the Art of Healthcare team. It's a safe and supportive online community of healthcare providers learning from experts and each other about how to really up our game in the human skill sets that are vital for delivering healthcare in the future. So when you're ready, we'd love for you to join us. Head on over to team.artofhealthcare.nz to find out more and to sign up. Back to the show. Yeah. Grant. I mean, we've been we've been talking a lot here, and like obviously knowing the the anatomy and the pathology and all of that stuff is is very important, and it's stuff that you need to you need to know, and you need to continue to learn, and you need to keep up to date with the science on. Kind of the big theme of this conversation, and uh, and I guess probably a, a big theme of this podcast as well is that is seeing patients as people first but also trying to develop ourselves as people as well. So, and I think that's important because if we develop ourselves as people and we start to understand ourselves better as people, it allows us to see the humanity in others. Absolutely. No, it's vital. Well. No, listen, I, you said it very well there. I think that's why earlier I think we discussed there should be a professional development plan, but a personal development plan too. And the two should be running alongside each other. And I think to become a better practicing physio, you don't just necessarily have to know more techniques. You have to actually, first of all, understand why you see the world the way you see it. And that might be because of the way you've been brought up, where you've gone to university, who you're married to, who your partner is, who you like living on your own and why. And, and as you said it very well, the only way I think you start to develop is when you're curious enough to start asking other people why they see the world differently. I I remember laterally being very conscious in an interview process, not trying to employ people who thought like I did. I liked people to think, I like to share the same values because it's important that we, we, we see the overall bigger picture. But I wanted people who, who would look out onto the world and see something different to me. Because if we all see the same lens, it's a bit limited. And I think, you know, we, the majority of us live in multicultural societies. And I think it's in order to help embrace the differences, you've got to go and be able to not tell people, this is why I see the world. Go and ask them why they see the world that way, but in a curious way. And I'm a great believer. It's like, you know, if you to go around the world, there are many different types of religion. 
which one's the best? None. The, the, they've all got good. They've all got probably things that are not so good. There's probably commonality in them all, contrary to what many people tell you. But I'm a great believer in, as you say, first of all, understanding yourself and for what for what you are and what you're not. And, and, and again, embracing. I'm a great believer too. You must know what your strengths are because your strengths one day will be super strengths if you really work on them. What you're not very good at, you might be average at one day. So don't overinvest in what you're not good at. So Grant Downey is not the academic physiotherapist who's going to go and do a PhD in a big meta-analysis. That is not my bag. Now, but I love people who want to do it too, because we need people to do that. So please don't think I'm knocking it. But it's not me. I could do it if I have to, but I really, you'd really have to really force and push. <laughs> in fact, no, the answer's no. But what but someone does need to do it. So please don't think shouldn't be done. I know the bits I'm better and will lean towards. And, and I remember I, on my first senior management course, we had to do a, a survey on that. And it, it was with a great teacher. And she taught me one thing straight away. Yeah, you, you're good at those. You can be great at those. Those bits you're not very good at. You need to be aware of that. And I often called it, they're my empty chair. But I make sure my assistant in a big organization is, is what I'm not. Mm. So I need someone who's really into detail, is really into process, because I'm the accelerator in a car. I'm not the how brake. Do you, how do you start to understand your strengths, Grant? If, like if someone isn't quite sure what they're, what they're good at and potentially yeah. could be great at, or what they're just okay at and probably are going to stay okay at. Like, I think that you've got to get feedback, and you've got to get feedback from the people who you work with or your, who, are, who are your equivalents in an organization, who are your peers, but more importantly, your patients. Do you get feedback from your patients? So, for example, if you treat 20 patients a week, let's say, and do they, at the end of their treatments, when they've been treated, say, for six or eight sessions, do they give feedback to the therapist? Not just, not just how did you think I mobilised your knee? That's not really that important. What was my manner? Is the things you would, did I ask the right questions? Did, did, did you think we connected together? You know, there are lots of things you can get feedback from. And I think, and, but I also getting it from your colleagues is very important. And people say, for example, let's say you work in a busy clinic in the middle of Auckland and you have, you have a receptionist, you know, you maybe have someone who, who will be the night porter to the building. Ask all people. I also remember again in the, one of the, the latter jobs I did at Manchester City, we used to have a, a gentleman called Omar who used to be the, the, the come on at eight o'clock at night and worked late o'clock in the morning, just got, as I call it, guarding the building to make sure we're all safe, even though none of us were there. And I used to, every morning when I got to work early, I used to get in about six o'clock, make him a cup of tea, just have a quick chat to him. And I remember one day someone said to me, you know, front guy in the front desk, What's wrong with him? He's not been in a very good mood for the last week. I went, well, first of all, he's called Omar, but do you realise his daughter who's 22 died in Finland last week? And he went, how do you know? And I just walked away. Because I have time to listen to other people and their stories. And I, so I think it's important to ask. And the danger is when you're asking feedback, it's too easy to ask those who you know what they'll tell you what you know. Yeah. You've got to sometimes ask people who might be the, the chief of the organization. It might be the person who, in your eyes, well, this person just comes in at night and looks after the building, a very important person. You know, and I think you need that feedback. And you need to sometimes debate with people why you see the world differently to they do, but listen to their opinion. You know, So when I live in a country like Scotland, which is thinking of breaking away from England, to be independent, can I see the positives? Yes, but I can also see the negatives. And I don't really have a strong opinion either way because I can see the, the strengths of it and I can see the weaknesses of it. But I can I can tolerate it both ways, if that makes sense, because I am I'm 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 curious to see would it be better, but at the same time it might not be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a that's a topic for a different podcast, I think. I would I would not add anything to that conversation, I think, sitting over here in New Zealand. You mentioned a professional development plan, and I think a lot of people are familiar with with writing those and creating those. But one thing you also mentioned was a personal development plan yeah, as yeah. well. Would you be able to kind of go into a little bit of detail, like what one might look like for yeah, you yeah, or what yeah. one might have looked like for the players that you worked with? 
So, Matt, well, what I would do more from, let's imagine, in the world I live in and working out, so one of the things I do as a business, I mentor a number of people, a number of practitioners, probably about 10 physios, five S&Cs, and about two or three different psychologists. Some of them are, are clinical physios, some of them are performance directors, so varying amounts of people. So I act, we, we call it a mentor or a critical friend. So what we'll do is, first of all, get that person to complete a SWOT analysis. So what are the strengths, weaknesses, threats, opportunities? And I ask them their why. Why are they here? What do they see their purpose to the world? From there, I get them to do a self-reflection on their own performance. Five being they're outstanding. One, they're at the bottom of the run and no one's a one. But twos, for example, partially successful, but they're failing to meet certain expectations. Three is a successful performer. And these are the reasons why within the role. Four is they're, they're, they're overachieving and five is outstanding. And very few people ever give themselves a five. And if they do, they'll soon realize they're not a five because they'll point out areas where they can improve because they're not. But it's then looking, getting them to, and, and they find this really hard at first. It's much harder than doing it from a professional perspective. And it, and it comes to that, how do you communicate with key stakeholders? Do they, do they, are you able to influence these people? Because I'm a great believer if you can't, first of all, connect. And connect isn't someone sending you a crest on LinkedIn and saying we're friends. That's not a connection. That's just a, that is a connection, but it's not a relationship. So the connection must go further than that. And then once the connection's made, possibly you can get onto the word of trust. And what is trust? A bit of a reliability in what someone does and the repeated actions. So we work on this type of thing. And what we do is the hardest thing about this is for some people, they start this journey and they accelerate and take to it and it takes off. Other people, it's a slow burner. But it doesn't have to be done at any any set pace, but the exponential growth can be massive. But it's about playing out situations and, you know, going to, for example, meet a chief executive who may give you five minutes of their time. You So you've got to think, this is what I want to do. This is the expected outcome and it'll be delivered high. And if it worked, great. If it doesn't, see me. Whereas a financial controller might want to know much more of the detail and why is what it's going to cost, what is the capital breakdown, how much do we need and might want a two-hour conversation. So it's teaching people to be able to be yourself, but remember one thing. If you want to get the best out of that person sitting opposite you, don't treat them like you want to. They want to be treated, but you've got to invest time to understand how they want to be treated. We do that very badly because if you think about it at school, parents, you treat everyone like you want to be treated. Rubbish. Don't. They might not want to be treated like Chris. They might not want to be treated like Grant. They might want a different type of treat. So understand that. And so what the soft skill development tries to do is get people to be curious, humble and tolerant of, of different situations. And rather than being that instant, well, I've got an opinion. Every ankle needs to get weight-bearing dorsiflexion quickly. Do they? Who said so? You know, so it's, it's been curious enough to, to sort of self-reflect on yourself, but in this personal development, see, seeing, try, I keep saying, it's, it's almost me trying to get the person to have a different set of eyes to the person they're dealing with, which means you're going to need hundreds of different eyes, and you will. But that's the beauty of treating people. Yeah, I was having a conversation with a guy who, who was talking about it, looking at things from, from different angles. And like, if you, if we're sitting across from each other around a campfire, I'm looking at it from a certain perspective. You're looking at it from a certain perspective as well. But if we each move one degree, that creates a different perspective Absolutely. for each of us. And then Absolutely. there's so many of them. So you, you need to get up and walk around that fire and look at it. Exactly. And, and, I think it, and I think, you know, I, I remember doing a big audit for a professional football club in Spain just before lockdown. It had a number of recurring hamstring injury problems. And I was asked to go in and look at it. And as you can imagine, when you go in as the external auditor, people are a bit fearful of you. And understandably so. And I remember I got all of the staff in a room and we were asking questions and it was going a little bit slow until one of the staff, again, plucked up enough confidence to say to me, excuse me, in your positions that you've worked in, have you ever faced problems like we've had? And I went, yeah, I have. And I explained to them about 
when I was at one of the Premier League clubs in England, our main striker had got a significant hamstring injury, broke down three times in training with me. And, you know, I was, you know, at desperation point. What am I doing? I'm getting everything wrong. And as I said to them, the fearful factor when you're in those perspectives, when you look at that lens, you just think, I need to give this player more time. And the answer is you don't. You just need to review your processes. And I think, you know, so the danger being is if you if you just keep that lens of of fear, you know, you will you will you will just add to the rehabilitation process. It just needs longer rather than the refine the process. And I think the value of having an ability to review things is by bringing somebody else in who understands your environment. They can give it a different lens and a different take. And I learned very early on my career that in order to really audit the processes that I was undertaking properly, it couldn't be done by me because I'm delivering them. I've got a bias. Yeah. I need a different lens. And so having a different lens for some is a threat, but I think that's a threat because they're insecure in the first place. To me, it's a learning opportunity. Mm. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Mm. Grant, I'm mindful of the time, mate. Off the, back, off the back of this conversation, mm-hmm. what should, depending on when people are listening to this, like what should someone do in the in their interactions with patients this afternoon or tomorrow morning or kind of whenever it is that they step into? Yeah, I think I think I think the key right. thing is to ask that. First of all, ask them their expectation of you, and find out what they're expecting from you as the physical therapist. And again, I don't really like the word physical therapist because implying it's just purely physical. It's got to be more than that. But actually, what have they come to see you for? And I think as a result of that, it'll very quickly help you shape the lens how you want to talk to them. Because some, you know, you know, you still get some patients who will walk through your door who expect a back is just going to be put in sideline and manipulated and cracked. And they like to hear this crack sound and they feel better. Well, all of us know that's not the optimal way to treat someone suffering from back pain. So if someone comes in and says, you know, I really just want to lie here and you treat me and I'm going to get better. And, you know, for me, then that that's an opportunity to get something like an infographic out to show them, well, actually the modern way of treating backs is this. I'd like you to take this away and have a read of it. You know, we'll have a discussion about the different treatment options that we can offer, but a lot of it might be exercise, might be life, but go away and read this first. So I think what I'm trying to say is establish very early on why they've come to see you. And if you can come up with a shared goal, well, actually, yeah, I do want you to climb those mountains again. It's going to take us three months, but these are the steps we'll have to take. But we will make that your goal. And so I think if you can em- embellish goal-orientated stuff or task-orientated stuff, which has goals for the patient, which cover yours, they're even better than just, say, increasing weight-bearing dorsiflexion. It's full now. Now go. Yeah. Nice. If people are interested in in you and the work that you do, Grant, where should they go to check that out? Anyone interested in me? They must be very sad. No, uh, they've been listening to us for what the last fifty yeah, yeah, minutes. Yeah, exactly. For them. No, listen. Yes, yeah, you're sorry. So, me, 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 me being a bit silly as ever. Listen, I have my own website, uh, which is www dot grantdowney.co.uk all of my background and information on that i have a lot of material that people can download it's all free i don't charge for anything i don't need to i've you know i've been a fortunate i've had my career and money isn't my my next goal i get i get people email me who would like to have an individual conversation i'm delighted to talk to people i do i i'm this evening i'm i've got a conversation with an 18 year old young final year uh school girl on the island who's wanted to be a physiotherapist so she's interviewing me and we're talking about her, her potential personal statement to be a physiotherapist and you know i have i have lots of conversations i would reply to every email i get even if the answer's no because i think it's just the way i've been brought up to do things and i enjoy talking to different people and i have time in my life now so people want to check out my website there's it's basically got stuff about what I've done. There's a lot of downloading of different aspects of what I think leadership is and soft skills. And it's all there. It's all free and there's no catch. There's no me wanting to hook people in. But if people then want to submit a, a request to have a chat about something, I'm delighted to talk just like you and I started talking. It's, it's a pleasure to do these things because, you know, you, you know, 
I'm a great believer, you know, we're all pioneers in what we're trying to achieve and someone's going to come hopefully along and run it even further. I've run the relay race. I'm now a happy fan of others and championing others to be to be the best version of themselves, not to copy other people. I think copying people isn't very unauthentic. Really, it's about maximizing your ability to do what you do and be happy with it and be satisfied. I love the fact I treat people. I love the fact that 30 years later, after treating some of the professional footballers, I've treated their sons who've, and daughters who now play professional football. And the fact I've still got a relationship, they can look me in the eye and I can look them in the eye. We know certain things that nobody else knows. And we've been through certain battles together, maybe some crisis, they've cried on my shoulder and they've been able to tell me things maybe they've not been able to tell other people. And and that's a privilege. So it, if you can, if you can help anybody to try and achieve their dreams, I've achieved mine. I would be delighted to help anyone. So reach out. And you're an absolute pleasure to chat to, Grant, as well. It's uh, well, you, listening, to you, listening to you talk and listening to the way that you deliver information as well as, as one very easy to listen to, but also a masterclass in communication as well. And, well, and well, well, the way you. that we can communicate with our, with our patients and with our colleagues too. I, th- I think it's important. I mean, and thank you for, for the uh, nice compliment. I, 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 I've been lucky that I have been, I've worked with some of the best communicators I've ever seen. And, I, and I th- you, you learn from them and you take bits. And I say, you know, I don't copy them because you can't be them. And I don't want to be them. And I, you know, it's a bit like I, I say to, the, the, I, as I said to you, I mentor a number of people and that basically means you speak with some people once a month for between one and two years. After that, I insist we break the relationship and they go and get somebody else because what you don't want to become is a mini version of you. You want them to be the best version of themselves. So it's important, as you said, and we talked about this, that they see, yes, they want you. I want them to see my lens. I want to see their lens, but I want them to see others' lenses. And it's important sometimes, believe it or not, to sometimes be mentored by someone who thinks very opposite to you and might be very direct. I mean, and I can be direct. You know, I can reply to people's emails, say, fine, do it because that's the response they want. I can also say, how are you? Did you have a nice weekend? How were the children? Yes, I think that's a great idea. Please go ahead, let me know the outcome. The two emails are the same. But if I want to get the impact to the stakeholder, I know which one to send. The other one is not rude. Okay, do it. It's not rude. That's what that person wants. So give him it. Yeah. Grant, do you have a question to leave us with? today just to kind of probe a little bit deeper on on developing ourselves as people yeah i i i I think for all of you as people what i would suggest you do is maybe again if you just do a mini swot analysis of yourself so just just do it on a you know one powerpoint don't 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 do pages and just put it in four boxes of your strengths your weaknesses the threats and opportunities to your career And then maybe share it with maybe six colleagues and ask them to comment on it and see, do they see see that as as a development plan or do they see it as you? Do they see that as your, because sometimes, you know, I also remember one of the things we did laterally in, in my last role is we always used to, at the end of the season, have an award for our performance staff, which was of 30 people. So physios, S&C, psychologists, performance analysis staff. And we used to have an award ceremony where, I gave a prize to what I thought was the most valuable contributor to the team. We also had a prize. Everyone voted for one person and we used to get them to write down why why Chris should be given this nomination. And actually that feedback to the staff was very empowering. And I used to have it on a screen. I wouldn't say Chris said this about Grant. It was just say, you know, the five good comments about Chris, five good comments about Helen, five good comments about Malcolm, et cetera, et cetera. And I think getting... First of all, knowing yourself who you are, but hearing it from others is actually more important because you may think you're that, but if you're not perceived of that, you're not. And so I think getting that peer feedback, so just get every, so you work in a clinic of six people, you know, give everyone two weeks to do their SWOT analysis, but make it a day. Don't say we're going to do this because then no one does it. Say in two weeks time, 
Everyone will bring in their SWOT analysis, one bit of paper, and they'll even present it over a cup of coffee. This is where three points where I'm strong, three points where I'm not as good. What are my opportunities? What are the threats to my career? And get feedback from the six people in the room. You could do everyone within two hours, or you do it over two, and say, and then see how others see you. Because that's the reality, not how you see yourself. It's a cool exercise to go through. Grant Downey, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's a wrap, team. I really hope you enjoyed that one. If you want to support the show, the best way you can do that is to share this episode out with your friends, your colleagues, your mum, someone who you think might enjoy it, and to make sure that you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. For more resources for all the episodes, for more information about the Art of Healthcare team, head on over to artofhealthcare.nz and you can find all of that stuff there. The amazing theme music for the episode was produced by my brother Jeremy Desmond, but otherwise you can blame me and my wonderful guest for the rest of the stuff. Thank you guys again so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for for showing the love. I really appreciate you. Have a great week.